Hear now the word of God as it is given to us in 2 Kings, the second chapter, verses 1 through 18. 2 Kings 2, 1 through 18. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Terry, I pray thee here, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and the two stood by Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. And he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over and when the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And they said unto him, Behold, now there be with thy servants fifty strong men. 
Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master, lest peradventure the Spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, He shall not send. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and they sought three days, but found him not. And when they, had, when they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto thee, Go not? We have here the last day of Elijah's life. Elijah was the great prophet against Baalism. And we cannot understand the significance of Elijah for us unless we understand the meaning of Baalism. One of the sad facts about Scripture is that people will take and give some kind of primitive meaning to things in the Bible so that it is easy to look back and say they were very blind and stupid in those days and they bowed down to graven images and we are too wise and advanced to do that sort of thing. But Baalism is very much with us. What was Baalism? First of all, it was a syncretistic religion. Syncretism, S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M, means to bring two different things together and hold them together without any rhyme nor reason, simply because you want it so. To illustrate, one prominent American woman who belongs to an ultra-fundamentalistic denomination claims to believe the Bible from cover to cover, but she believes also in reincarnation and in witches. Now, she is guilty of syncretism. She is bringing things that are opposite the one to the other and uniting them in a false union. Syncretism is smorgasbord religion. Syncretists say, I like this and that and that from all these different religions. It puts them together and adds up to nothing. Baalism was syncretistic. Israel was syncretistic. Israel professed to believe in the Lord, the covenant God. Throughout the entire history of Israel, from Jeroboam the first to Jeroboam the second, and the handful of sorry kings who succeeded him until captivity came. Israel professed to be a covenant nation, a covenant people, worshiping the God of Israel. But they were syncretistic to the core. Every religious cult that came around, everything that was politically practical to adopt, they adopted and incorporated. 
Beginning with Jeroboam the first, they took the calf cult because of political reasons and called it a part of Jehovah worship. Under Ahab, they took other forms of Baalism and they united it with Jehovah worship. But now it's important for us to look at the word Baal. Baal, the plural, Baalim, is a general term which covered a variety of religious faiths and a variety of gods. The word Baal simply means Lord or Sovereign, Master. One of the most popular of Baals, one condemned as strongly as anything is ever condemned in the Bible, is Molech worship. Molech worship we also find called Moloch worship or referred to as Melech and Milcom, and we have it in the modern English name Malcolm. In every form it means one thing, king, king. Moloch worship was the worship of the king and of the state. The state was sovereign. Now what do we have today? Just two weeks ago, I was in Ohio testifying at the trial of James Olin, who was on trial because he placed his child in an Amish Christian school. He was charged with contributing to the delinquency of his daughter. The state is seeking to protect its schools. In about two weeks, or less, because it will be the 4th and 5th, 6th and 7th of December, I shall be in Washington, D.C. to testify at the IRS hearings. Hearings concerning a proposed IRS regulation which will make the IRS the super board over every Christian school in the United States to control them as Lord. Now what are we seeing? Moloch worship. Something God calls an abomination. The state saying, we are the Lord. In Georgia last week, I dealt with a group of pastors facing a common problem, a problem that is familiar in Los Angeles County and throughout every state in the Union. Federal and state agencies coming and demanding of the pastor and the church treasurer, the church records, financial and otherwise, as Lord over the church and declaring that the church is a public trust rather than a God-given institution. What is this? It is Moloch worship. You see, Ahab prayed to Jehovah. We're told he did. All the kings of Israel prayed to the same God that we pray to in Scripture, that their prayers were an abomination 
because other lords had dominion over them. This is Baal worship. It's a question, you see, of priorities. What commands us? What commands you? That is your God, your Baal, your Lord. And one of the meanings of Baal is also husband. Scripture commands wives to obey their husbands in the Lord. Not otherwise. We are commanded to obey civil magistrates and to pray for them for conscience sake, in obedience to God rather than to man, in terms of the word of God rather than the word of man. Scripture declares, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Baal worship is having a Lord other than God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, the God of Scripture. The life of Elijah had been spent in battling against this kind of compromise, against a nation that claimed to believe in the God of Israel, the covenant God. but which killed or slighted or neglected his true servants. Remember, in that battle where Ahab lost his life, he had the false prophets of the Lord lined up by the hundreds to prophesy victory. The land was full of them, they all claimed to believe in the covenant God. In fact, they were so bold that one of them struck Micaiah, supposedly in the name of the Lord, rebuking him. We do not lack the churches today that condemn every pastor who preaches the word of God faithfully as though somehow you were preaching faithlessly to God. They speak so because they are Baal worshippers. They have another Lord. Now we come to the end of Elijah's life. The lonely prophet who through the years had worked and stood alone and cried out to God, It is enough, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And in his last days been given a servant son, Elisha, who came from a wealthy family and made himself as a servant and a son of the old prophet. And in his last years, three seminaries or schools of the prophets sprang up. And so Elijah left behind him a group of men ready to 
proclaim the word. And now the Lord has told him it is time, Elijah. Time. And he prescribed a strange journey, a symbolic journey, a prophetic journey for Elijah. Elijah had been the prophet of judgment. Now at the very end, by the route he takes, he sets forth the fact of judgment. First he went to Bethel to bid farewell to one group of his students. Bethel was originally Luz, the place of Jacob's ladder. With Jeroboam I, it became a place of syncretism. Then second, Elijah went to Jericho, the point of entry to the promised land. Do you see what he was doing? God had ordered him to reverse the journey of Exodus from the wilderness to Jericho to Bethel, the first place of the sanctuary. And now from Bethel to Jericho to the wilderness. The prophet of God was indicating captivity. Captivity. God had led them there and they had turned that land into a place of abomination. And therefore God through his prophet was taking them out symbolically to indicate the end. Elijah had been a lonely man most of his life. Solitariness was deep in his bones. And now in the company of Elisha, he bids him farewell twice to be alone at the end. But Elisha, the servant's son, who loved the old man, deeply refused to go. As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. He makes his last request of his spiritual father. I pray thee. Give me, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. What does this refer to? To the laws of inheritance. According to the laws of inheritance in scripture, the oldest godly son received a double portion. If there were three sons, the estate was divided four ways and half went to the eldest godly son. Any ungodly child received nothing. He then had the responsibility for the care of his parents and exercised leadership in the family. And Elijah now asks for a double portion of thy spirit. to be the heir of Elijah, as indeed he did become. Then as Elisha saw Elijah taken up, 
He cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. The meaning of that cry is simply this. The defense of Israel, its chariots, its horsemen, its military strength is not in its armies, but in the word of God, in the prophet of God, in the servant of God. So that a greater defense than all that Ahab or his sons commanded was in the person of Elijah. And the true power of any country today is not in its armies, but in its people who are men of the word upon whom a double portion of the Spirit has fallen. As sure as I stand here, I will tell you that it is not the atomic weapons that will preserve this country. The Word of God declares that when men are not in harmony with God, a falling leaf shall put an army to flight. Men stand in terms of God and his word. And human weapons have their place. But apart from the blessing of God, no man and no nation stands. During the 1930s, when... The future of Europe was being discussed. And someone mentioned to Stalin the resistance to his plans that would come from the Catholics in a particular country he had in mind. He smiled cynically and said, And how many legions has the Pope? But today, one of the greatest persecutions in the world is being launched in the Soviet Union against Christians. Why? Because they are frightened of the legions of the Lord. Because they are seeing as never before the resurgence of Christian faith. Because whereas earlier the Christians who were brought forward were meek and submissive and easily led away, now they stand up to their accusers and to their judges and witness to them and proclaim the judgment of God upon them. And they are afraid of them, even though the power of the sword is in their hands. The chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof, where do we see our power? The mantle of Elijah fell upon Elisha. And Elijah was taken up into heaven by a mighty whirlwind. The storm wind we find repeatedly in Scripture always associated with the coming and with the presence of the Lord. We meet with it in such passages as Isaiah 29, verse 6, 40, verse 24, Ezekiel 12, 11, Zechariah 9, 14, and so on. 
there is an ironic factor in Elijah's last moments, the chariot of fire, the horses of fire. Ahab had died in a chariot. So that at the last moment, the two great adversaries, Ahab and Elijah, saw a chariot as they left the earth, one to reprobation and one to be ascended up into heaven bodily. Ahab died in a chariot and the dogs licked up his blood. And the chariot was washed in a pool used by prostitutes for bathing. The death of Ahab was the ultimate in degradation. But Elijah was escorted into heaven by chariots of fire and horses of fire. The ironic fact about Elijah again is that here is the one prophet who asked to die. So very, very discouraged that he prayed actually It is enough, O Lord, take away my life. Feeling himself to be a failure, discouraged and disheartened by the continuing and the deepening apostasy of the nation. And he is the prophet who never dies, who is taken up physically into heaven. We meet with Elijah once more after his ascension on the Mount of Transfiguration prior to our Lord's exodus at Jerusalem. Even as Elijah left the promised land and went out into the wilderness, the word that is translated in Luke's gospel as his decease at Jerusalem is literally his exodus, his exodus from the promised land because it was now given over to judgment and not one stone, he declared, would be left standing upon another because they had rejected him. Men and nations stand in Ahab's day, in our Lord's day, and in our day in terms of God and his word. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Will our country be like Ahab? And will it like Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and Pilate wash its hands of Jesus Christ and go down to destruction? Or will it turn and believe in him? In Proverbs 29, verse 18, we read, Where there is no vision, the people perish. 
but it can also be rendered where there is no vision the people cast off restraint. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Shall we perish for lack of hearing ears? Men today have what Paul called in writing to Timothy, itching ears. They are sons of the devil by faith, children of the father of lies. And they believe in the theology of the lie. That every man can be his own God determining for himself what constitutes good and evil, that hold a good thought, thinking makes it so. Have faith in faith. In other words, believe in man, the power of positive thinking, rather than the Lord God of hosts. Baal worship is very much with us. And all too many men today believe that they are Christians. They profess to have faith, but their faith is not in the God of Scripture. What does it mean to have faith? Our Lord teach us in a parable concerning faith what it means. A widow Scripture's repeated image of utter helplessness. Goes to an unjust judge, a crooked judge, with a case. The judge couldn't be less interested. But she cries out day and night, and finally the judge says, Though I fear not God nor man, lest this woman wear me out with her continual pleading." and create a scandal or a problem, I will give her what she wants. And our Lord says, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect to cry out unto him day and night? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. What does it mean to have faith? It means that our priorities are from, the God, from God, that what we are concerned about, what we pray about, what we think about, is of the Lord. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Men today lack that kind of faith. Other lords have dominion over them, other bales. And they go along easily day by day, thinking and planning purely in terms of their self-interest. And if once in a while they are aware that the nation is drifting into destruction, it troubles them briefly and they put it out of their mind. It doesn't occur to them to pray nor to serve God more faithfully because other lords have dominion over them. Their priorities are not in the word of God. And that is Baal worship. 
so that the paganism of our time is not merely out there in the world, but it is deeply rooted in the heart of the church, in our hearts, in our indifference concerning the matters of the Lord. In every one of the 50 states today, selected churches are finding federal and state officials coming, demanding oversight of their books, taking the Christian schools to court, arresting pastors to establish legal precedents in order to subjugate all churches, and Christian schools. Why? Because they believe in lordship, the lordship of Moloch, of the state. And they are zealous in their faith. Shall we be zealous in ours? Shall we stand in these days and say to these men, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me, God. The time of testing daily comes closer. There is not a week passes, but I have a call from Washington telling me of the developments and of the plans and of the agencies that are moving against the Christian faith, moving to obliterate it, moving to control all Christian institutions. We had better make up our minds soon. Who is our Lord and whom we will serve? and in terms of whom we shall stand. Because every man will make a decision whether he is on the receiving end of the knock on the door or not, and the Lord will know his decision. Where do you stand? Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that thou art the Lord. We thank thee that all other gods are but vanity, and in thine own good time thou shalt destroy them and their worshippers. O Lord our God, recall us to thy word. Make us zealous therein, instant in prayer, that we may become faithful soldiers of our Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks unto thee, O Lord, for these thy people, the sheep of thy pasture, for their love of thy word and of thy house. And we pray that thou would strengthen their hearts and make them ever mindful that if God be for us, who can be against us? 
that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, that this is the victory which overcometh the world, even our faith. We thank thee, our Father, that thou hast called us to victory in Jesus Christ. Make us faithful soldiers in thy service. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure without doubt all of us are very tremendously grateful to you for your exhortation to us to maintain the faith as we all should do as Christian Christians. There's something that bothers me, though, as an educator over a period of some 50 years, and that is this matter of a program of action to follow our faith. In other words, works without, uh, faith without works is dead, we well know. And we certainly know there are some very pointed problems that face us right now in the year 1978 and the year 1979, such as the, the discussion about the power of uh, uh, David Rockefeller, for instance, and the bilateral conference that we read about very easily in many books. Uh, we know about the sat satellites covering the United States as well as in Russia, tapping our telephones, get getting the disorganization of the churches, and the results that we see during the 60s, the hippies and the, and the uh, people that are erratic on, on grasping for straws. And what's the same that's going on right now on this very day because they do not feel a sound foundation due to all this confounded permissiveness that we all rebel against. I've rebelled against it as a teacher, and I know many of you people without doubt have done the same thing. But what are we actually doing about it except giving out a lot of rhetoric? And that's what disturbs me. You can see editorials on top of editorials to the point that people don't even read the editorial pages anymore. You'll see books on top of books where they're trying to sell things for dollars. Dollars then become our God, as we all know. And finally, wonder where in the world this uh, whirlwind of, of uh, divide and conquer is going to take us. It seems to me that the question I should ask you, therefore, is what do you know as a leader in your field that is being done, whatever, about translating this <coughs> matter of our theories and, and uh, uh, religious uh, convictions into a program of action, getting on the ball, really, and facing up to reality and getting something done? Yes, the question is. What are we doing about it? What is being done about it? <clears throat> well, first of all, a great deal is being done about it, and this is one reason why the persecution is breaking out. The Christian school movement, since 1950, has grown dramatically. No one knows today for sure how many are in the Christian schools of this country but the number is considerable. For example, within the past week, uh, from one smaller city in Indiana, I learned that at one school alone, they lost 500 pupils. This was a grade school, grades one through six. They lost them to Christian schools. And this is the kind of story I get across country. The loss is phenomenal. There's no statistics giving that information because there is no collecting agency. 
However, I think the estimate of the number who are now out of the public schools and into Christian schools is perhaps as high as one out of three. And the percentage is growing continually because two or three new Christian schools are being established daily. This is why they are trying to kill the movement. Now, I said I would be in Washington for the IRS hearings. We know that some of the IRS officials have stated to some officials in Washington who have inquired, congressmen and the like, that their reason for doing it is to save the public schools. If they don't bring the Christian schools under control, the public schools will perish. So they see it as a life and death matter. These are humanists. They feel if the Christian schools continue to grow at the present rate by the end of this century, they will have lost this country. It will be a Christian country. Now this should tell all of us something as to where the real action is. It's not in the political area, and I'm not saying we should slight it. I believe we should do more there. But I'm saying that we've got to recognize we have the tool right now that is frightening the opposition. Let's strengthen it and develop it. If you want to take over this country, help build up the Christian schools. That's what the enemy feels is going to take this country over, and they want to destroy it. Now, second... What is being done in another area? What is needed, of course, is to redevelop biblical thinking in every area of life and thought. Now, we started some years ago a foundation, Chalcedon, to do precisely that, to find men as we had the funds to rethink philosophy, economics, mathematics, every area of life and thought in terms of the word of God so that men could go out and rethink their disciplines in terms of Christian thinking. Well, since we started it, a number of other groups have gotten the same idea, which is very good. I still think we're out in front, but uh, the point is people are seeing the responsibility. Now, I want to say something further. One reason why we've gone under the past 50 years, and I've seen it since I was a boy, is that too many Christians and conservatives have done nothing but to document what the opposition is doing. Ever since I was a boy, there were all kinds of men and groups who were always ready to peddle information about, you see how they're taking over this church and they're taking over this, the social gospel is making progress here and the modernists are making progress here, and the Fabian socialists and the communists are taking over this and they're setting up this group and that group and now we have the Trilateral Commission and we have the Council on Foreign Relations and so on. What are they doing? Why, millions have been spent since I was a boy, and that's putting it mildly, documenting our own funeral. All that money, if it had been spent from the time I was a boy to the present in building Christian schools, would have resulted today in a country that would be God-fearing. 
What we need is positive action. And that's what we're finally beginning to get. This is positive action. The school is positive action. That's what we need to build up. It's only such things that can turn this country around and are doing it. All this time, they haven't been the least bit worried about anything anyone has been doing until now. And they're frightened. They are literally frightened. They're going to try to destroy everything by having literally thousands of trials of Christians for one thing or another all over the country to try to bleed us to death and discourage us. Well, this IRS regulation is a diabolical thing, but uh, I think it was of the providence of God. IRS got flooded with more letters than ever before in its history. Never had such a thing happen to them before. It shook them up badly, so they're having to hold a hearing. On top of that, we got, through the Foundation of Law and Society in Washington, six schools together to act as plaintiffs to sue IRS for breaking its own laws. And that's beautiful. I, every time I think about that, that delights me. IRS has taken so many people to court, and now they're really shaking because somebody has taken them to court and makes them look bad. They're very upset. They're going around the offices, we hear, fluttering and upset, and why has this happened to us? We're such nice people, you know. So uh, we have to take the initiative. We have to be aggressive. And that's what's beginning to happen. And I'm very happy about it. Any other questions? Yes? By what means exactly are they planning on taking over the schools or controlling them? Yes. The IRS regulation, there are a number of ways. The IRS regulation which was entered into the Federal Register in August and would have become a law on the 23rd of October if we had not forced them to hold a hearing, would have required all Christian schools to integrate their student body and faculty to a ratio determined by IRS and to grant scholarships to students to bring it up to the ratio they set. Now, of course, uh, this can destroy a lot of most Christian schools. They are barely a making ends meet. And if they have to grant so many scholarships to minority group students, that will destroy them. And as Senator Helms has said, if this type of thing prevails, the next thing they can say is that homosexuals must be included in the faculty as a minority group and that there must be uh, abortion uh, and birth control counseling for junior and senior high uh, students. In other words, with this regulation, the IRS would be the board. Then, and those of you who are familiar with this sort of thing will bear with me, uh, there are attempts to demand unemployment compensation of all Christian school teachers. Now, 
that type of thing can be depend, de- demanded of employees in any profit-making organization. The Christian schools are not in the category of a business, so the demand is lawless. But it comes through every state from Ray Marshall of the Labor Department. Then another type of uh, regulation is of nurseries. For example, in a number of states where women meet, say, on a Tuesday morning for the Women's Guild meeting, one of the mothers will take turns taking care of the small children in the church nursery. That constitutes, they are told, a daycare facility and must be licensed by the state. Now, I've just cited uh, three methods. I mentioned earlier the matter of going to churches and demanding oversight of their books. These are a few of a multitude of strategies and attacks that are being used. And it costs a great deal to fight every one of them. By the time you get to the Supreme Court, it takes half a million dollars. Yes? Uh, could you speak up a bit? I feel very incensed. I feel very incensed about this matter of the fact that we have a God-fearing nation. It's no longer a God-fearing nation. We know that. When only 30% of the population actually actually attends church, let alone believe in the uh, fundamental tenets of the Bible. And we know that dollars have superseded godliness throughout the homes, throughout almost every uh, aspect of American life. And we find that big power groups such as the unions, such as the, uh, the various nationalities, the various isms, if you want to name one into the other, they're running wild on the ter- uh, subject of psychology, trying to infiltrate, infiltrate people's minds, are running so ridiculously out of hand. And we have a court system, the weakest segment of our entire government, we all know that, so it has become a science of loopholes rather than a justification of merit, then we have something more than rhetoric that we must have to offer, and going through the soft touch process back in Washington, D.C., I can see no reason at all why God-fearing people that have a strong sense of, of uh, godliness can't get together in the unity status and bring the pressure to bear say, we've had enough of this, I need to go over, or you show us what. Instead of taking the soft-touch attack, that's what I see wrong about the people that are very well-meaning and are worthy people being rubbed out, such as in this Jimmy Jones that we're reading about today. Uh, it's a bad subject to bring up, I suppose, but it still is a point in hand about the cults that are coming up in all directions and Easily so, because we won't define clearly the distinction between freedom and license. And somebody ought to define it. The practicing license and calling freedom. So I'm just wondering if, if you get that to watch it. I'd like to go with you. I'd like to do battle. <laughs> well, of course, in this IRS protest, the Christians did respond beautifully. The mail went in like a flood. 
and I hope it's the beginning of many such protests. Are there any other questions? Yes. Could you tell us a little about the uh, Christian school problems in Ohio? Yes, in Ohio, it's been a long-standing problem. Uh, in Ohio, the state issued guidelines for all schools, public and private, requiring them to teach humanism. This was finally defeated in two cases which took about four years through the appellate courts to the Ohio State Supreme Court, the Levi-Wisner case and the Canal-Winchester case, and they did win. But the matter is not over, as in this James Olin case. Now, on the 20th of this month, there will be another case. Uh, this is a better type of case. The Reverend Joe Lewis, a good fighting name, is going to court against the state of Ohio, suing them for violating the First Amendment by having an establishment of religion, namely the public schools, which he says are humanistic schools, are teaching religion, and therefore are not entitled to public funds. <laughs> now, naturally, this has the state very, very much upset. That's a case to be in prayer about. The state has been stalling about three years on that case, and it's finally coming uh, to a preliminary hearing on the 20th of uh, December. The Reverend Joe Lewis, incidentally, has independent means, although he has a fair-sized congregation, so he's in a somewhat better position to carry on this fight. seems to me that there's a great deal of separation within the Christian churches in, in the sense of denominations. And uh, I was wondering if, if you see, I mean, first in a in broader scope where the government is, uh, is coming against the uh, Christian churches in general, not just in the school issue, but other issues. Do you see any uh, means or movements where where there can be cooperation with the uh, with the Christians that that, that are real believers, uh, so that they're they're approaching this, these problems on a unified basis rather than being divided and conquered? Yes. Well, first of all, in these Christian school cases, they are coming together, the various uh, church groups. They are coming together not in any legal or uh, interdenominational sense, but they're coming together simply to work together. This is the best way. The courts would prefer to see all the churches in some kind of union because they are easier to control. If they are independent, it means 
uh, thousands of independent groups everywhere, uh, difficult to control. Uh, thus, they demand of uh, churches trying to find out what association do you belong to? And of course, they are going after those that are not organized, hoping to uh, establish a legal precedent which they then can apply to all Catholic, Lutheran, uh, Christian Reformed, Episcopal, and other schools, you see. At present, they don't want to disturb, by and large, a denomination. You get too many people angry at you at one and the same time. Uh, so unity in the sense of organizational unity is dangerous. It plays into their hands because once they get control of all organizations, it's easier to keep tabs on them all. Even when there are state Christian school associations of independent schools, we find that they try to infiltrate the meetings and get a copy of all the schools that are attending the meeting or are in it. And uh, this is a, re a regular problem. I was last month in uh, Alabama for the Alabama State Christian School Association meeting. And uh, they had to require in all the meetings that you have a delegate's badge because state officials were trying to get in and find out the names of all the schools or to tape the uh, roll call just so they could know where all these schools are. You see, in most states, there is no necessity of filing with a state department or any state agency if you have a Christian school. The state doesn't know where to go to persecute these schools in many cases unless a school locally tells them, a public school, there's a school down the street and we've lost a hundred uh, students to it. So there is a working unity, but an organizational unity is the wrong thing to have. Yes. We are required to register at the uh, private Christian schools. The state of California has a registry of uh, private Christian schools. Is that not right? No. The state would like you to believe that you must register. But if you start a Christian school here in California, you do not have to have any dealings with the state or the local uh Board of Education. You are technically required to submit attendance reports, but there is no law punishing you if you don't. Many never turn them in. So that all you need is a business license and zoning permit, which is entirely in a different office of the uh, city or county government. There is no connection with the State Department of Education although the State Department wants you to believe that there is. We started our school here, the biggest uh, opposition 
we had was from other school people. You're still getting our use permit. Any of you remember that idiotic uh, uh, battle we had down City Hall? I couldn't believe it. People were People were concerned about the fiddly little traffic we'd have here, and not a word was said about a 600 school student across the student school across the street being built. Not a word was said about that. We were going to create a hazard for our little school. Uh, frankly, our school here we operate on the premise that uh, if the government really wants the information, they'll send you the same form 20 times after you neglected to fill it out the first 19. And, uh, you know, fat, dumb, and happy. Those of you who like, are like myself uh, believe that it's nobody's business that we have firearms, for instance. Let's face it, the only thing that keeps some people from doing things is they don't know who's got firearms and who has them. And that's what Pastor Rush doing is saying. The government doesn't know who's got schools and who doesn't. And let's leave it that way. Really. I, I, we, we are going to school here. We could get some free milk from Sacramento. We're not anti-cow. <laughs> we don't want anything free from the government. The minute you take one nickel of government aid, I know, I worked for Uncle Sam for a long time in the military. The minute you take one nickel of his money, he wants 95 cents of the say and what goes on. He did it in the public schools. When federal aid education went in, the local school boards only have 10% of the final say on their local schools. They used to have 90%. Now they only have 10. And the federal aid doesn't pay quite half of the cost. You just have to be on the alert. Uh, you know, kind of, I, I think you kind of operate on the premise that uh, some of the people that are bureaucrats, they want to be fair, they want to be decent, but they get quotas, you know, and they have to come around for pressure. And uh, uh, this will make you think I'm a real heel, I know, but I'll give you an example of how. An IRS man came, man came to our church office one time and wanted to know if uh, so-and-so was a member here. Yes. Uh, did they contribute so much money last year? I said, I don't know. I'll take a look and see. Checking on their tax that they reported. Yeah. Here's, here's a copy of here's, here's the record. In fact, they gave more than they claimed. He said, I'll take that. No, you won't take that. That's our record. He's not going to have that. I said, you will not take that without a court order. Well, could I have a copy? I said, sure. We'll go down to the bottom of the hill to Safeway, and there's a Xerox down there. Okay, we went down, put the thing on the Xerox machine, and said to him, you got a dime?
for getting this information from Pastor Rush Dooney. He'll give us more in the next few nights. Uh, you know, if we're just aware of what's going on, we can sure do a lot. But we have to be aware. Now, I got news for you. Tomorrow night, the question and answer session isn't going to be as short. It's going to be much, much longer. How many of you are able to be, think you'll be able to be back tomorrow night? Just about everybody. And uh, will you bring at least one more person with you? Sure. Well worth our time. Shall we close by standing and singing hymn number 226?